0: Thanks for tuning in. Now let's get to this week's episode. Oshawa, in the Durham region, just east of Toronto in Canada, is home to 150,000 residents. It's nestled among the towering fir trees and the Saugeen River, and one can enjoy a fall afternoon walk to the McGowan Falls. Its streets are steeped in culture and history with art galleries, quaint shops, and Veterans Memorial Park. Rory Hache was born on a hot summer's day in July 1999. At 13, she was an army cadet, but then developed a rebellious streak like many teenagers do. At 4, she was tiny with a slim frame and dark black hair with orange streaks. But before she could pass through this phase in life, someone gave her crystal meth, She had just started high school and began a journey that took years for her to overcome. She bounced around, hung out downtown, and often visited The Refuge, an amazing youth center in downtown Oshawa that provides programs for struggling youth. When 2010 began, Rory, who was now 18, was finally in a better place. She had started to get her life back on track Her hair of many colors, was now blonde, cut short, and shaved on one side. And she'd gotten a tattoo behind her right ear with the word, alive. Perhaps it was a daily reminder that she'd made it. She was alive. Rory and her mother, Shannon Dion, talked daily. She was proud to see her daughter doing well on her own. She had a boyfriend, had returned to school, and was working part-time and even had her own apartment. In early August of 2017, Rory discovered she was pregnant and shared the news with her mother. She was excited and determined to keep the baby, and Shannon vowed to support her. A few weeks later, Rory visited her uncle Harley. She had stayed with him and his family for a time The Durham Region News reported that Harley was a Hells Angels biker with a lengthy criminal record and had done time in prison. The tattoo on his back stated his fight record behind bars was 41 wins and zero losses. Although a tough guy, he had a soft spot for his niece. He had recently bought Rory new clothes and shoes and gave her and her mother money to help them out. Harley sensed Rory was afraid of something, something that was happening in her life, but she didn't talk about it that day. Harley recalled that when Rory left, she gave him the biggest hug. A few days later, on August 29th, Rory visited the refuge. The next day around 9 p.m., she was taken to Lake Ridge Health for an unknown medical treatment but didn't stay long enough to be seen. Across town, Adam Strong was 45 years old, living in a dingy and dirty basement suite in a house in the suburbs, just two blocks from a police station, a place he'd lived for 10 years while working at a gas station on the night shift. The Toronto Sun reported that his girlfriend had broken up with him. In the beginning of their relationship, She had been living on the streets, addicted to drugs. Adam rescued her, gave her a place to live, and got her clean. But he was controlling and abusive, so she ended it. He responded by using social media to complain about his relationships. It's not known exactly how Adam and Rory cross paths. Some thought that he preyed on the homeless and drug-addicted, although he would have us believe otherwise. Somehow, Rory ended up at his grimy and shabby apartment basement suite that fateful night. Authorities think it's likely that he attacked her at the top of the stairs and again in the kitchen. He then restrained her in the bedroom and sexually assaulted her, before picking up a hammer. Tiny Rory was no match for the hulking beast, The blows came down. The force of his strikes fractured her skull. The star reported that her blood splattered the ceiling and walls, covered an air mattress, and landed on her bright pink sneakers. Adam managed to clean up most of the blood and placed her sneakers into a dollar store bag and stashed them beside his bed. Next, he set about getting rid of her body. What no one knew at this point is that this wasn't the first time he disposed of a body. He retrieved his hunting knife designed for gutting and skinning animals. He stored her body in plastic bags in the chest freezer in his bedroom, and over the next few months, he systematically discarded them down the toilet. Rory's family were frantic to find her. On Ontario's missing website, a family friend posted Rory, if you're reading this, get to a phone and call me or your mum, please. Nobody is mad at you, sweetie. We all love you and want you back. And they offered a cash reward. Her godmother, Krisha, thought perhaps she just needed some space but as time went on, became very concerned. The family, along with police, posted notices on social media and searched for Rory. CTV News reported that, according to police, approximately 2,000 people are reported missing annually in the Durham region, and that most of them return home. Only 43 have remained missing in the last 50 years. Perhaps it was turning out to be a bigger job than Adam expected, or maybe he was worried about being caught. A few days later, he removed Rory's body from the freezer in his bedroom and transported it to the Oshawa Harbor on the shores of Lake Ontario. He took steps to make sure it would stay hidden below in the murky, 70-degree water. But his secret didn't stay hidden for long. A week later, on a Monday evening, Rory's body floated to the surface. A fisherman fishing off the pier at the lake made the gruesome discovery and contacted police. Officers blocked off the street and combed the nearby park for evidence. At first, authorities thought the body belonged to an older, heavy set female but when Rory's mother learned of the discovery, her instincts told her they'd found Rory. It took two months for DNA tests to confirm what she already knew. She told the Toronto Sun that there is an animal on the loose. This goes so deep. The pain. The medical examiner identified multiple injuries on Rory's body including two skull fractures. But due to the state of her remains, cause of death could not be determined. Police had no suspects, no idea who the monster was that so cruelly ended a young, vivacious life. Then, on December 29th, the plumbing at Adams' house stopped working, and the upstairs tenants called a plumbing company. As he sat in the squalor of his apartment, he debated: Should he run? Two plumbers arrived and began to snake the drains and were tarred for four hours. As they tried to clear the drains, they pulled out strips of a fleshy pink substance. As they removed each piece, they placed it in a plastic bag. Eventually, one of the plumbers called his boss ordered them to pack up their tools and leave. They left and called 911. Police arrived to see the plastic bags. An officer knocked on Adam's door and asked him, What have you been flushing down the toilet that you shouldn't be? Adam dropped his head and his body deflated as he answered, Okay, you got me. The gig's up. It's a body. Adam was read his rights. He had the right to remain silent, and anything he said could be used as evidence against him. As the officer put Adam into the back of his car, he announced, I want to spill the beans, and added, If you want to recover the rest of her, she's in my freezer and said, I considered suicide. I knew it was done. Adam was taken to the police station and interrogated. He was charged with indignity of a body, while investigators continued to gather more evidence. The House of Horrors was sealed up, and for a month they continued to remove bags of evidence. In July of 2018, Forensic testing discovered a second DNA in the freezer and on the hunting knife. There was a second victim. Police scoured the missing person's reports in the Oshawa area and narrowed it down to two possible women. They approached the parents of one of the women for a DNA sample. It came back a match. Adam's second victim was Candace Fitzpatrick. Ten years earlier, 18-year-old Candace left home to go to a mall in Oshawa and never came home. Her sister saw her later that summer. That was the last time they saw Candace. She was known to dabble in drugs, was a bit of a free spirit, a hippie some might say, and often left for periods of time So at first, her family wasn't too concerned. But then, as months turned into a year, then two years, her family became worried and reported her missing. Her father, Bill, never gave up hope and walked the city streets searching for his missing daughter. In November, police interrogated Adam for 11 hours. Sitting in a small room, He and the detective sat in chairs opposite each other, six feet apart. Adam's large frame filled the chair as the detective began to ask him questions. Adam's voice is loud, strong, and confident. His answers are direct and matter-of-fact, with no remorse. The detective comments that he's concerned about how calm Adam is. And he responds, yeah, there's no getting around what he did. But he goes silent when asked how he killed her. The narcissist wants to keep that to himself. When the detective told Adam she was pregnant, he strongly denied it and insisted she wasn't. Later, the detective gestures towards his arm with his hand in describing Rory's body Adam responds with, Yes, sorry, I don't remember. Yeah, it wasn't important to me, man. And he calmly states, She's definitely deceased. The detective goes on to confirm that he disposed of her, and Adam answers yes. Then he adds, Tried to, but unfortunately was foiled by inadequate plumbing. And that's a freaking shame. The detective sighs loudly, And Adam says, no, no, for me, it was a shame for me. And the detective tells him, you sound really selfish when you say it like that. CBC News reported that in the interview, he blamed his arrest on faulty plumbing and told police it was an efficient method of disposal. Global News reported that he told the detective that he knew Rory from when she was homeless Later, when Adam requested a fast-food meal, the detective accommodated him. Afterwards, Adam asked the detective, I don't know how appropriate this is, but I'd like you to pass on to her mother and father my condolences. Then he talks about how he's hoping that spilling the beans will get him some comforts in jail. You know, like internet access. And he says, like, I don't have anybody that's going to buy me a TV. Adam was charged with two counts of first-degree murder. He pled not guilty. In May 2020, Adam appeared in court. But he wouldn't look at Rory's mother or Candy's dad. He chose a trial by judge alone. The prosecution agreed, as then... He would be unable to sever the two murder charges. Adam's trial began in September. He sat behind plexiglass with a slight smirk on his face as a police interrogation video was played. Forensic expert identified Adam's DNA on Rory's remains and data from Google indicated his phone was at the Oshawa harbor on September 4th when he dumped Rory into the lake. Prosecutors alleged that Adam killed Candace in the same manner that he killed Rory and that he dismembered them both to cover up their murders. His defense alleged that the prosecution failed to prove that Adam was responsible. The trial lasted two months, but the verdict would wait a few more months. On March 16, 2021, a judge found Adam guilty of a first-degree murder for Rory's death and manslaughter for Candace's death. In his ruling, he stated that Rory's murder constituted first-degree because it occurred in the course of sexual assault. However, there was insufficient evidence that Adam had intended to murder Candace, but it was clear that he had caused her death. When the verdict was read, Candace's father Bill was outraged and stormed out of the courthouse. At the sentencing hearing two months later, Rory's father, in his impact statement, told Adam You, sir, have brought darkness to everyone, and that the gruesome murder of his daughter is every parent's worst nightmare. For Rory's murder, Adam was sentenced to life in prison. With no chance of parole for 25 years. For Candace's murder, he received 18 years to be served concurrently. Hopefully, the man with no heart and no soul is sitting in a prison cell with no internet and no TV. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday. For the episode of Christian Martin Kit was in the army for 30 years, a major and a helicopter pilot who served overseas. Then he met Joan, supposedly a widow. When he found out she'd lied, he ended their marriage. Joan vowed to destroy him. He lost his career, and three neighbors lost their lives. If you are dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music sound effects and Vaseline studios and quick sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers.